Thanks, Sarah. Well, if you want to leave your Bibles open and pull out your outlines, uh, you'll find a detailed outline in there for you to follow along with. Sorry, it's not more detailed. Um, Why don't we pray together as we ask now God to help us to understand this part of His Word and this part of the life of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come here today, it is a privilege to hear You speak, to have heard Your Word read and to get a glimpse into these final hours of Jesus' life before His death. We pray that as we come to Your Word today, that You would show us the glory of what He is doing and that we would see the love of Jesus. pray this in His name. Amen. I was having one of those days the other day when Sarah was out and I, was, I wanted to watch something, but I didn't have much to watch. And I, There's a show Sarah and I have been watching. We've been watching that together. And I thought, oh, what will I watch? So I, I looked on Netflix for something interesting and I found a documentary um, called The Mind Explained. And I thought, that's good. If I can understand my mind, that'll help me in life. Um, and so I, I thought I'd watch this, this series, or at least the first one, which is a, a documentary on the human brain. And the first one talks about the way our brains work with regard to memory. Now, I don't know if you've seen this, but the kind of documentary points out that there are some people that have amazing memories. They can remember crazy amounts of facts, but there's very few of those. The majority of us aren't very good at remembering things. Actually, we're pretty poor, and it gives the story of a girl who recounts the events that happened on September 11, 2001, uh, when the twin, twin Towers came down. Uh, she recounts where she was sitting with this detail, and what she saw the smoke come through and pass by a house, and the view out of the window, uh, and she's very clear on what it was like. The problem is, they then get her mother to come out, and she's much older now, um, and her mother says, we didn't even live in that house in 2011. And in fact, you didn't have a view and there's no way in the world the smoke that had come from the trade centres falling down would have come across. And what they kind of work out is that she's just pulled together different memories that were strong memories and conflated them and put together this view of what is going on. And apparently, we as humans do that all the time. Obviously not us. We we remember everything, don't we? (laughs) All our views of things seem to be right. Uh, No, it's not that way at all. Um, What what the show says is that we actually have trouble remembering things well. Or at least that's what I think the show said, if I've remembered it well. (laughs) It got me thinking, how often are we sure of things, you know, observations of events or conclusions on which we make life choices, when really we're not that great at assessing the world around us or even assessing ourselves? It made me think, how often do we make wrong choices? How often do we place more confidence in ourselves and our view of the world than we do in what is clear and spoken of from multiple accounts? See, one of the great things about the Bible, particularly the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is we've got four different accounts, eyewitness accounts of the same events coming from different people, kind of like the way the mother's story kind of helped correct the daughter's story on that Netflix series. So we have four different angles of people who are, who are gathering things together. Luke was, was taking the accounts that were in existence of others and pulling together a careful account of the events of the life of Jesus. See, that gives us confidence that what is reported in the Scriptures actually happened. But when it comes to our decisions about life, and our observations about our abilities, and even just our memories... We're not great judges of reality. And today, as we hear this tragic story of the life of Judas and the decisions of Judas and the impact that has on Jesus, it raises a question for me. Maybe Jesus made a mistake of judgment. 
Maybe Jesus, when he was picking the 12, the ones he'd pour his life into and entrust himself to and disciple and mentor, maybe Judas was a mistake. Maybe as he went through the 12, he should have picked someone else, but Judas got in because what happened causes him great trouble. That's the first point today, troubled, troubled. Come with me, John 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now, these disciples are the ones that Jesus had been investing into. He chose them. They were his apprentices. And at this point, John tells us Jesus was troubled. Now, I don't know if you use that of yourself at any point. You know, I'm feeling a bit troubled today. It doesn't sound very deep or very kind of emotive, does it? It's just, I'm a bit troubled. But, but actually, John only uses the word here, troubled, uh, two other times relating to Jesus. Uh, the first time is when Jesus is standing at the tomb of one of his best friends, Lazarus. And Lazarus's sister, um, Mary, is there and she says, why didn't you come sooner? Listen to what it said, John eleven thirty three. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who came with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. It's a, it's a deep concern that he has. This is a grief over his friend who is dead and the pain that it's caused those who knew him and loved him. We hear it again in the very next chapter of John, in John 12, 27, when Jesus is telling the disciples about his oncoming death and the fact that he would have to stand before the Father taking the punishment for us. He says this, John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But this is why I came to this hour. As Jesus looks forward to what he's about to do, to lay his life down on a cross, he's troubled. And now, as, as this moment comes at the table in an upper room with the disciples round this, this meal that they're eating together, he's already articulated that Judas is about to do something or has already begun to do something that will cause him great pain. You've got to ask, did Jesus make a bad choice? Is that what is troubling him? Is that what is causing him grief? Why? This man's about to hand me over. Why? But if you look carefully at the text of John 13, unlike so many of us who make bad judgment calls and have poor memories, Jesus didn't miss something about Judas. He knew what was going on the whole time. In verse 18, he just said, um, I know those I have chosen. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. In other words, he's like kicking him. I'm telling you now before it happens. So when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Jesus is so different from us. So different in the way that he is able to understand the world and his observations. His, his confidence in his own ability to see what is happening is 100%. In fact, not only does he know the future, but he's planned the future. So here he, he quotes in, John, uh, in verse 18, Psalm 41. He's quoting what David wrote about his enemies coming against him. And, and really, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of David. Do you remember the promises that God made to, 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 to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, that he would make them into a great nation and give them uh, many people and bring them to a great land and bless the world through them? Do you remember that promise? Well, that promise was given to, to David and a son of David. And he would be the king that would rule forever. And then Isaiah came along and painted a picture of the one who would come who would suffer. And Jesus brings those pictures together and says, like David prayed, my enemies raise their feet against me. So right now, 
One at this very table is raising their feet against me. And I'm telling you this, not just because I want to be fancy that I know, so that you will believe that I am He. Now, when Jesus says that, you believe that I am He, He's not just saying that, you know, that I am He, just some person. He's saying, I am. He's saying the name that God gave, that God had to, for Himself, that He gave to Moses at the burning bush. I am has sent you. Jesus is saying, God is here. I am in control. I know what's happening. I'm telling you this will happen with Judas so that you won't run away, so you won't turn. You'll remember, I am in control. I did not make a bad choice. This was always the plan from the beginning. At every moment of this section... These last hours of the life of Jesus. We've kind of got it in slow motion, slowed down for us by the Apostle John. We see Jesus is in complete control of the universe. The temptation for us is to think that there's, there's something greater going on in life. Um, that Jesus' life or our, our life is some runaway train. That we're just mere passengers in the story of life. But we need to stop and recognize, friends, God is not like us. He doesn't forget details or... Forget his promises. He's in control of the universe and so ordering the universe to bring about his plans, which are for his glory and for our good. He is in control. And every slow motion step John lays out for us, we see that Jesus willingly, intentionally, and explicitly walks the plan that he and his father had set out before the creation of the world to the cross. Never forget. God is in control and that his plan is for his glory and our good. So if this was part of Jesus' plan from the beginning, why then is he so troubled at this point? It's not like it's out of control or a runaway train like sometimes we feel like our lives are. If he's in control of his world and his plan, why is he so troubled? Well, the answer is because of how much he loved Judas. See, just because Jesus knew Judas would betray him didn't make it any easier for the fate of Judas. It was like Jesus is watching a catastrophic train crash happening in slow motion before him at the table with his closest friends, seeing someone he loved turn, not only from him, but from salvation. As you look at the events that happen, it's like Jesus throughout this whole section is giving Judas every opportunity to stop what he's doing and, and, and to come back to Jesus. If you remember back to last week, we saw in the start of chapter 13, Jesus had just stooped so low as to wash the feet of his disciples. You know, never does the master wash the feet of the apprentice. Never does that happen. It didn't even happen with the, with the high-level slaves. It was the lowest of low jobs. But Jesus gets up and loves his followers. He loves them by laying down his life for them and washing their feet. He even washes the feet of Judas. Judas knows what he's thinking. Jesus knows what Judas is thinking, but he still does it. He loves him. He'd reminded all of them that, that a servant is not greater than his master. He'd given another opportunity to Judas. Do you remember who you are? Do you remember who I am? He'd pointed to the fact that he would wash them clean. And now in verse 26, as Jesus is reseated at the table after washing their feet, enjoying what would be their last meal together before his death and resurrection, he tells them that one of you will betray me. Why does he tell them? Well, he's prepping them so they don't run away, but he's also giving Judas the opportunity to stop. One of you 
will betray me. I think back to that moment with Cain and Abel, where Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. And just before he does, God comes to him and says, sin is crouching at the door. God is the God who is coming to us saying, don't do it. Don't go that far. Oh, he doesn't force us, but he gives us every opportunity. And here, Jesus is giving Judas every opportunity to stop the plan, to pull back, to pull out. He's even discreet in pointing out who it is. If you look carefully, do you notice the information about who will betray Jesus is only given to Peter, who's probably sitting on one side of Jesus because he he lays back and asks the question. Peter's probably sitting at the the right hand of Jesus. And and Jesus kind of leans across and and it seems like he says it just to him, not to the, the whole table. Why is Jesus so discreet about who is about to betray him? Why is he so careful? He's not trying to shatter Judas at this point. He's trying to melt his heart. He's not trying to condemn Judas at this point. He's he's giving him one last opportunity. It's as if he's saying, Judas, I see you and I love you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Well, there was another at that table that knew what was going on, wasn't there? Judas. When I first started um, playing chess with our kids, our kids enjoy the occasional chess game. Uh, I really loved it because it was reasonably easy to beat them at the beginning. Uh, They've since gotten better and I find that humbling. Uh, But when we first started playing, especially with the boys um, and the girls now, they'd go to make a move and I'd be like, are you sure you want to make that move? Have you seen where my queen is? Have you recognized what happens if you put that piece there? It's pretty much total destruction for the rest of the game. Are you sure you want to put it there? You know, I see you and I love you. Don't make that move. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is saying here to Judas at the table. Jesus dips a piece of bread, probably in some oil, not not merely as a sign to fulfill Psalm 41, which says that 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 gives the bread to the other will be the one who, who kicks him with his heel, not just to identify the betrayer, but as an act of love. See, passing a piece of bread was, 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 a, was a symbol of friendship. That's what you do if you're at a table and someone wanted some bread next to you. If you hated them, you're not going to pass the bread. But if you love them, you're going to, here you go, here's, here's some bread with some awesome, oily, great stuff. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gesture of friendship. We see it in, in the biblical narrative with Boaz and Ruth. Now, check it up later, Ruth 2.14. You'll see that, that Boaz showed Ruth great kindness that wasn't deserved. And what he does is offers her some bread dipped in oil as, as, as a kind of symbol of that friendship. Jesus is giving Judas every opportunity to stop, but he won't force him. He won't force him, but he can't help but love him. And that's what causes him great trouble. He's seeing this one whom he loves turn and leave the arms of the Saviour and walk into the arms of Satan. Have you ever stood by watching a friend or a loved one make a terrible decision? Sometimes I I see it with our kids (laughs) and there's a look in their eye. They know what they're doing and you're like, don't do it. But you just wait to see whether they'll choose and they do it anyway. I've seen it with friends. I've sat opposite the table of, of, a, of a good friend of mine who said, you know what, I think I've decided I'm, I'm going to divorce my wife. 
And we, we sat and chatted and, and, and talked through the pros and the cons and, 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 and there'd been nothing wrong between them, no, no kind of sexual immorality or anything like that. He just said to me, look, I've, I've, I've done better and I've done worse. I've done richer and I've done poorer. We've done sickness and we've done health. And I said to him, it's not a checklist. It's a commitment. It, they're promises that you've made. I looked him in the eyes and I said, it sounds like to me that you're going to say, I think I know better than Jesus now. So I'm going to do this thing and ask for forgiveness later. And he said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And at that point, I said, you are walking away from the creator of the universe. Who knows if you'll come back? I see it in myself at times, as I'm sure you do too. Knowing what's right, but not caring enough about our saviour to change. As Jesus sat at that table, he's watching his friend walk straight to hell. While he knew it would happen, while it was the sovereign plan laid out before the creation of the world, the fact that Judas chose to reject his maker and walk into the arms of Satan, the one whom hell was created for, caused Jesus great pain and to be greatly troubled. It made me reflect, do I love the people around me like Jesus does? Are you, like Jesus, greatly troubled when people reject him, when they're living for a different king, when they are walking hell-bound to hell because they're not listening to or following or coming to the king? And when people reject Jesus, why is it that we're disappointed? Is it because they're not part of our club anymore? Is it because they won't share a similar worldview to us or it'll make family events or social gatherings more awkward? Or are you troubled because you love them and you know what's at stake? Jesus is the sovereign king of his creation, yet he loves his creation, even those who reject him. And the tragedy of this moment is that Judas is face to face with the creator of the universe. But he thinks there's still something better. This is point number two, the rejection of Judas. The rejection of Judas. You know, often I hear people say, you know, if if God were to turn up today, then I'd follow him. If I saw Jesus face to face, then I'd be there. Then I'd I'd do these things or I'd give my life to him. But here is Judas who's lived with Jesus for three years, who knows him, who's seen his love, looking face to face with him and still... He thinks there's something better. Friends, never trust our own objectivity. Never entrust your life just to your mere choices that you'll see things clearly. Science points to the fact we don't remember events clearly. We don't um, look at things clearly. And here, history shows us we make dumb choices. It shows us a really important point. Left to our own devices, without God reaching out and grabbing us by the collar and pulling us into himself. We'd all run as far from Jesus as we possibly could. Judas is face to face with his maker and Jesus loved Judas. Gave him every opportunity to stop, to turn, to come back to him. But he didn't. There was something more important. Something greater that he thought would fulfill him and give him comfort and security or that would be better than coming to the king of the universe. Friends, as we watch this event of history unfold today, we come face to face with the creator of the universe ourselves in his word by his spirit. 
As if we're at the table with Jesus and we're being challenged to say, how will you treat him? What will you treat as the most important thing in your life? Will you trust your own self-assessment of what will be best for you? Your own powers of judgment? Your view of what's right and wrong? Or the words of the creator of the universe? As you reflect on the forgiveness Jesus holds out to us, this passage makes us think through how we will respond. Will you run to him? Or will you run from him? All of us are running When we're confronted by our own brokenness and sin, every single one of us runs to something or away from someone. We either run from our sin or we run to Jesus in sorrow and repentance. We either run into the arms of Satan or we run into the arms of our Savior. The question is, where are you running Well, in verse 27 of chapter 13, John tells us that after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you were doing, do quickly. And then verse 30, after receiving the piece of bread, Judas immediately left and it was night. Judas eats and runs. He receives the bread of Jesus, but not the love of Jesus. And how often is that like us in this world? We receive uh, the good gifts that God has given us. We love the world we live in. We, we say what a great day it is and we, we, we point to the joys of life, but we forget the one who gave it to us. Instead of breaking down his stubborn will, the love of Jesus hardened his resolve. John tells us that he took the bread and left immediately, immediately. And then it was night. Now, as John started this gospel, he spoke of the one who who spoke light in the darkness. Here, Judas leaves the light and John tells us it was dark. Judas leaves the light and goes out into the darkness. The light of the love of Jesus had shone in that night, but Judas ran from it. What does it mean here that, that Satan entered Judas? You kind of read that and you're like, well, you can't really blame Judas if Satan entered him. Like, how does he stop that? You kind of think through what's going on there. Well, Satan had not overpowered him. He had not kind of come in and controlled him to do something that he, that he didn't want to do. Um, but rather, Judas had, been willingly invi- Judas had willingly invited Satan in. He kind of gone to him and welcomed him in. And that's the reality with Satan. Satan can't possess Christians who have the Spirit. Now, none of the apostles, the disciples at that point, they didn't have the Spirit of God. They had Jesus with them. But, but Satan can't come in and possess people who, are, who have God's Spirit in them. It's just impossible. What he can do is lead us into temptation so that, that we kind of kick Jesus out, that we then step out. James 1.13 says this, No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by what? By his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Jesus' very own biological brother says clearly to us in the book of James that it's our own evil desires that lead us away. 
And Satan rolls all sorts of things in front of us. A helpful illustration that I've kind of had is, imagine for a moment that um, as a Christian, um, we're in a ball. You know those Zorb balls? You can go down hills. Anyone ever been Zorbing? Okay, you can talk to me about whether it was good or bad later. Um, But you're in this Zorb ball. Imagine that. And Satan can't get into the ball. But he can push the ball around in all sorts of places to go, look at that. It's 30 silver pieces, Judas. You should get that. It'll be so much better for you than following Jesus. Or or look at this situation. Or that person is going to give you more fun in life than your spouse. Or or, or this this dodgy deal is going to return you more money. I I read the account um, of of an article just yesterday of a man in, in the U.S., who had a quite a successful financial background, uh, went on to, to make a lot of money in real estate and property, then became the head of a, um, it was kind of a, a health fund, and then started using that in a dodgy way. In fact, he became at one point on the list of the FBI's 50 most wanted people in America. Because this guy was so drawn to money that he stepped out of what he thought was right and then lived for himself. Anyway, at that moment, he's watching TV as he's on the run from the police and he hears a sermon and is convicted of his sin and becomes a Christian, ends up turning himself in and then spends the next number of years from 51 to 60-something in jail but trusting Jesus. And he said, what the problem was at every point is that I thought I could fulfill my desires. I thought I could could get more money and more money, and that's what made me live, but I didn't realize I was enslaved to it. Satan pushes us around with all sorts of good opportunities, and the way that we deal with them is the way that we we come and say, "Do do I put Jesus first, or do I give in to Satan's temptation? This is the point that Judas gave in to the darkness, but the darkness would not overcome Jesus. And that's where we get to the next point, the hour of glory. The hour of glory. The moment you'd think, humanly speaking, Jesus is down and out, that it's all over, through his great sadness at what Judas has just done, John tells us Jesus entered his hour of glory. You're like, what? One of your 12 has just walked away. He's gone and he's not in Christ. He's not following Jesus. But now Jesus says he's in his hour of glory. That's not... what. Glory sounds like to me. Look at verse 31. When Judas had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I'm with you for a little while longer. You will look at me. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I now tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus now gives a glimpse of the most glorious event in world history so far. Now that Judas has gone, Jesus' trial and execution has been kicked into motion. There's nothing else that's stopping it. It's the final piece of the play. And paradoxically, it's how Jesus is glorified and honored. It's, it's putting an end to the effect of death and offering forgiveness to all who've turned away from him. So many people come to Jesus looking to make their life better thinking that Jesus is some sort of crutch to get through life, to make it more comfortable and more, more happy and bring more joy. We kind of view Christianity or Jesus as like the bread and butter plate at dinner. You know, you can have one if you really need it. You know, I can sit on the side. It's a place to put that extra carb so you can get a few extra carbs in with your meal. It's a good thing on the side, but it's not really the main deal. 
But time and time again, the scriptures point us to the most important thing in Christianity and in world history. The most glorious thing, the most captivating thing the world has ever seen. And it's Jesus' death in our place. Do see that. The scriptures point us to be amazed that God the Son would die. If that doesn't seem glorious to you, come and chat with me. Come and think through, why is that? What am I missing about this moment where God would die in my place? He would take the penalty for my sins. Come and and see, because this is what life is about. Recognizing that God has loved us in His Son. It's been the plan of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit since before the world began. And what you see here is, is not only the action of Jesus, but God the Father and God the Son are working together as they are glorifying one another in this great movement forward. And we'll see more of what that looks like in the, in the coming chapters. But as Jesus does what he and his Father had planned in all alternity, the Father is glorified too, and, and the Father glorifies the Son. This is a moment of glory. And in these slow-motion moments before Jesus' death, In just a few hours' time, Jesus is setting the stage for the amazement, the glory, the high point of world history, reconciling God and man through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so, in response to this moment, as he he preps his followers in that last time at the table with the 11 others and himself, he prepares them for how to live waiting for his return, what they are to do at that moment. How to keep their mind in the game. And Peter, again, misses the mark. I really love Peter. It's one of my favorites. You know, because he keeps putting his foot in it all the time. He keeps missing stuff. He, he reminds me of, of me making dumb choices and speaking when I shouldn't speak and, and I should just stop and listen. So Jesus explains that he's, he's going. And he's going a place that they can't come. Listen, listen to what Peter says in verse 36. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? I've just said you can't come. Peter's like, but where? Where? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? He's like this kid in the back seat. I want to come with you. I want to go with you. You're telling me how to live. And in fact, he's just told us that we ought to love. Just before this, Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another. That's what I want you to do while you're waiting, to love one another. But Jesus, he's, but Peter, he's so like, no, 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 I don't want to come with you. And you kind of get why. He's Jesus. <laughs> I want to know where you're going. I want to come along. Peter wants to know Jesus' plan. He wants to be close with him, to go with him, rather than obey him. Jesus is saying, Peter, love one another. This is the command that I've given to you. Love one another. As you reflect on the way I've loved you, love one another. Keep loving me. That's what will hold you in as you look to the way I've loved you until I come back and give you the Spirit. That's what you need to know. That's the thing I've chosen this very moment. I've planned all of world history. My hour of glory has come. And he says, love one another. You got that, team? Love one another. But Peter goes, no, no, I'm coming. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that so often we want to know Jesus' plans in minute detail? We spend all this time deliberating on things he hasn't told us, coming up with theories to join the dots that Jesus hasn't made clear. Yet we spend hardly any energy or effort on obeying what he has told us. It's like we're eager to know what he hasn't told us, but slow to obey what he has. And it's Peter. He wants to follow with Jesus. 
But he can't follow him. Because he's not the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Only Jesus can reveal the Father perfectly and be glorified like he was before the world began. Peter has not got it right again. Sure, he wants to come with him. But he doesn't want to listen to the King. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Because Jesus knows that Peter himself will have his own denial. Verse 38. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? I mean, that's what he's claimed. I will lay down my life for you in verse 37. I will lay down my life for you. I'll do anything for you except obey what you're saying. But, you know, I want to come. I'm there. Let me go. Let me see what happens. Where you're going, I'll go. And Jesus just asked this question. Will you lay down your life for me? Really? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Peter is willing to lay down his life for Jesus. And yet in less than three hours' time, he will have denied him not once, not twice, but three times said, I don't even know that guy. I've got no idea who he is. I want nothing to do with his life. What John does here and Jesus is doing in this story is actually putting up before us two people, Peter and Jesus. Side by side, showing us two men who from the outside look the same. They're human. They're just flesh and blood like us. Who, when it comes to treating Jesus rightly, both fail. They both fail. Judas, you know, hands Jesus over, but Peter denies that he ever knew Jesus. They're both doing horrible things at this moment. What does that show us? None of us treat Jesus as we ought. None of us. Not of our own accord. All of us make terrible observations about life. Even when we come face to face with Jesus, our natural inclination is to run from him, not to him. So what is the difference between Peter and Judas? What, what is the difference? Well, from God's side, it's that Jesus chose Peter and didn't choose Judas. You've got to hold that. It's not that he didn't love them both. He did. It's just that according to God's plan and purpose, Jesus only chose to, to reach into one of their worlds and pull one of them out from their destruction that they deserved. He's in control of this because on our own, we'd be left to run from him. But from their side, from our side, from each of their experiences of Jesus, they both reject the Lord. However, they've got different responses to their rejection. Judas is overcome with grief. Scriptures tell us he goes and hangs himself after taking the money and betraying Jesus. He tries to pay the penalty for his own sin himself. He tries to take it on himself and says it's too much. Look at what I've done. And so he says, I need to die and kills himself. But Peter becomes one of the leaders of the church because he recognizes that forgiveness and mercy is only found in the love and the glory of what Jesus would do at the cross. He's recognized the one who's loved him. He's come on his knees back to him. How... how you respond to your rejection of Jesus. And let's face it, all of us have rejected him. How you respond to that rejection and sin determines your, your eternity. Will you have a pity party and think, no, I've got to do better, I've got to be better, and continue to do that and end up where Judas does, walking into the arms of Satan and hell itself? Or will you recognize Jesus is the only one who's laid his life down for us? 
Will you try and fill your life with, with pleasures and securities and distractions and comforts to shut your eyes and ears to Jesus and think, no, I know the best way forward. I don't need this Christianity stuff. My life's fine. Will you come to the creator of the universe who's loved you and laid down his life for you and run to him? Friends, from our point of view, how you respond to Jesus matters. And the question that he asks Peter is the same question he asks each and every one of us here today. Will you lay down your life for me? Will you lay down your life for me? The answer to that question determines eternity for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you haven't treated us as we deserve. That you've given us your word and made yourself clear in in your son that we can meet Jesus in your word and see who he is and what he has done for us. Help us today, Father. To come to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. To turn from our running away from you, whether that be in the small things in life, in little areas where we're trying to hide them away from, from you as Christians, or maybe as in our whole lives, our whole attitude where we've been running from you. Please fix our eyes on your son. Let us see the difference between Judas and Peter and their responses to you. And let us put you first in all that we do so that we might love others as you have loved us. We pray, Lord, that the glory of the cross, the amazing nature of Jesus' death in our place would captivate each and every one of us so that we might live for you and spend eternity with you because of Jesus' death in our place and resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.